0: This, I, need to
1: test I think it's on. Okay, great. Do you want me to redo that whole thing? <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. All right, everybody. Um, so, yeah, so if you would like one of those, please feel free uh to grab one. And as I said, you can either do it individually or you can do it uh uh with a group of people that you used to do as your care group. Okay? And while the ladies are passing those out, why don't you uh, join me in prayer here as we get ready to open our worship service, okay? Make sure I got everything. I did. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious God. We thank you for who you are and what you do. At this time, Lord, as we come together for our fall missions emphasis, we just ask that you would continue to give us a desire and a passion, just a burning desire to be in prayer for our missionaries throughout the world. It is increasingly becoming a more dangerous place, Lord, uh, throughout the world, even here in our country. And we know, Lord, that your angels encamp around those uh, that are bringing forth the good news of the gospel uh, here in Alfred Almond, in the surrounding communities, Hornell and Wellsville, uh, New York State, the United States of America, and your word reaches to the end of the earth. Uh, we know it will not return void. So we just thank you, Lord, for being a part, for having the privilege of being part of your plan. Uh, there is no plan B, Lord. This is your plan for bringing the good news of the gospel to the world. So we just thank you for that. We just ask now, Lord, that you would uh, uh, still our hearts, Help us to bow the knee. We are the sheep of your pasture, Lord, and we just ask that uh, uh you would be with us as we open your word. We know your word is truth, Lord. So today as we start a new series on marriage, we just and sexuality, we just ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to your word, that we would um understand that this is your word, that marriage is not defined by man. It is the first institute you created, Lord, along with the family, and it is defined by you. So just give us your wisdom, give us your knowledge, and we just ask, Lord, that it would be held in high esteem and honor and that we would uh, um, do all that you ask us to do, that we in our marriages, Lord, that we would do that with a cruciform love, a sacrificial love um, that Jesus taught us as he taught us on the cross, that he loved us and he gave himself for us. Might we do the same. And we'll just give you the praise and honor and the glory for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: a bit, and that's alright. My mic is working, so I wonder if it is piping through in all of the other rooms that it needs to be. I see a thumbs up through the window, so I'm going to take that as a green light to go. Um, So we're talking about the story of marriage and the original wedding today. We're going to be looking in several different passages of Scripture, but uh, we'll be beginning... In Genesis, good place to begin, right? We live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on the trajectory to a Revelation 21 future. That line is from a fellow by the name of Andrew Walker who wrote an excellent book entitled God and the Transgender Debate. I love that line. It captures the truth of life incredibly well. For Christians especially, but for all people truly, the truth of that line means that in order to rightly understand the world we're living in, to rightly understand our own lives, to rightly understand who we are, we have to examine the Genesis 1 blueprint from time to time, and we must reflect on what went wrong in Genesis 3. And as Christians, we must keep our hope... Fixed on our Revelation 21 future. Creation, fall, new creation. But there's something missing there, isn't there? The Bible doesn't present us with a three-act drama. It actually presents us with a four-act drama. The only reason we have a hope of a future new creation is because a redemption has taken place has been accomplished. A redemption that actually kickstarted the new creation before the original creation actually had its end. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And really, this drama is cast in terms of marriage. The Bible's narrative opens with the one true God creating everything else, and the opening scenes of creation climax by portraying a wedding. Of a man and a woman. Genesis two, twenty-one to twenty-three. The Bible's narrative concludes with the one true God establishing a new creation, and the concluding scenes of this new creation begin by portraying a wedding of the divine Lamb and his bride, the church. Revelation nineteen and twenty-one. In this way, marriage actually frames the entire Bible. Between these two weddings, Scripture unfolds thousands of years of human history, highlighting God's extensively gracious deeds to redeem, rescue, and restore enslaved, imprisoned, and fallen humanity. It seems that almost immediately after God unites the first man and the first woman as husband and wife, perhaps even before the honeymoon could begin, an interloping serpent persuades them to rebel against God. Genesis 3-1 to 4-1. Tough start for the original couple. In the wake of that rebellion, every human marriage to follow would face conflict, suffering, and brokenness. Nevertheless, God graciously intervenes to preserve marriage. He continues to join together man and woman, enabling couples to experience some measure of joy and to propagate the human race. Genesis four seventeen to five thirty two. As humans increase, so also sin increases in the world, and God chooses to intervene in judgment. Genesis six, one to seven. But as he destroys what he has created, he graciously chooses to preserve a man named Noah and his wife, and their three sons, and each son's wife, Genesis six, eight to seven sixteen. After the flood of judgment, God commissions this family to begin repopulating the earth, Genesis 9-1. Even still, however, sin continues to overwhelm Noah and his family and all of his descendants, Genesis 920 20 to 28 Genesis 11one one to 9 Many generations later, God graciously chooses to intervene by sending a pagan named Abram away from his family to an unspecified location. He begins to reveal his determination to bless humanity in spite of their persistent wickedness. And Abram takes his wife and his tag-along nephew, who apparently brought his wife and two daughters as well, and sets out according to God's directions, Genesis 12, to 9. God makes staggering promises to Abram concerning his uncountable descendants, which astounded Abram because when God first verbalized this promise, Abram had exactly zero descendants. Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 13, 14 to 17, Genesis 15, 1 to 5. However, God also announced that during the time of their growth as a people, a nation would enslave them and abuse them, But God would judge that nation and ensure that they arrive in the land that he had promised Abram they would receive, Genesis 15, 13 to 16. Amazingly, God provides Abram and his aged wife with a son and then multiplies Abram's descendants exponentially through several generations. God was forming a nation who would embrace the name of their ancestor Israel, Abram's grandson. But they find themselves enslaved under a harsh pharaoh in Egypt and cry out because of their slavery, perhaps not knowing that God had promised Abram that their slavery was a part of the plan. Exodus 1, 8-14, Exodus two twenty three to 25 God then focuses His attention on this group of people. And working through a man named Moses, God judges the nation of Egypt with a series of destructive plagues and leads Abram's descendants out of Egypt to a mountain in the wilderness, Exodus seven fourteen to 19, 2. At Mount Sinai, God speaks to the people, initiating a covenant relationship with them, in which He offers to be their God and invites them to be His people. They accept His proposal, and God ratifies the covenant, with the reciting of God's words and the repeated agreement of the people, and through a sacrifice and a meal eaten by the leaders of the people. Exodus 19, 1 to 24, 11. In this way, God enters into a covenant relationship with Israel. Indeed, this depicts God marrying Israel, taking the nation as his corporate human bride. However, almost immediately... Israel proves unfaithful even before they arrive at the honeymoon destination by worshiping gods represented by a golden calf, Exodus 32, 1-6. Even in the face of this blatant unfaithfulness, God graciously holds on to his bride. But her unfaithfulness persists through the generations so that God, blessing all of humanity through this nation, as He promised Abram He would do, seems a ridiculous impossibility. But God, at the precisely perfect time in the flow of human history, enters the human race Himself as the eternal Son of God takes on human flesh born to a very young woman in the midst of a betrothal. After Jesus' birth, the betrothed couple consummate their marriage and raise Him as their son, Matthew one 18 to 18-25. Jesus upholds the value of marriage and promotes God's perspective about marriage by referring to the account of the original wedding recorded in Genesis 2 in the midst of His public ministry, Matthew nineteen three to 12 Matthew ten two to 12 Mark 10, 2-12. Although we have no credible evidence that Jesus ever married, on a couple different occasions, he enigmatically refers to himself as the bridegroom. But the Gospels leave us guessing about the identity of the bride. The New Testament letters provide some specific instructions concerning how Christian couples should live, but famously in Ephesians five twenty two to thirty three, the Apostle Paul clarifies the connection between the marriage of a man and a woman and the marriage of Christ and the church. And he suggests that God intended this connection from the beginning, as he quotes Genesis two, twenty four. Since both Paul and Jesus refer to Genesis 2.24 and their teachings concerning marriage, it seems clear that for a Christian understanding of marriage, a biblical understanding of marriage, we have to begin with an exploration of the original marriage. Everything else in the Bible remains rooted in the perfect picture painted in Genesis 2.21-25. So let's take a look at the first marriage. Unique, yet paradigmatic, or a paradigm, a model, a template for all future marriages. Genesis 2, 21 to 25. So Yahweh, God, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh, God, had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Christians typically recognize the description of the original wedding in the Garden of Eden as a paradigm for all other ma- weddings. But we have to acknowledge some uniquenesses, certain unique features of this original wedding. Because of this uniqueness, we should be careful how we trace the marital threads of scripture back to this source. So let's explore this passage, noting in particular the unique aspects of what happened and then we will find solid ground to begin exploring how this passage serves as a legitimate paradigm or model for our understanding of marriage today. First, we must notice the utter aloneness of the man. God comments to himself concerning the oddity of this situation. Indeed, a God assesses this reality as the first not-good thing in all of creation in Genesis 2.18. God also indicates that he will remedy this situation by providing the man with a helper fit for him, a category in which nothing else in creation apparently fits. Perhaps God parades the animals before Adam for him to name in Genesis two nineteen and 20, so that he will recognize his plight, his utter aloneness. In any case, this completely unique situation will never again arise in history. Men certainly always have options for suitable helpers today. Second, we must remember the time and the setting of this wedding. Sin was not yet part of human experience, and the man and the woman stood in the presence of God in unbroken fellowship with Him and with each other. Also, they stood quite literally in the Garden of Eden a place of unparalleled beauty, not yet tainted with sin or curse. Every relationship since then begins, tainted with sin and twisted by the fallenness of this world. Third, the man and woman had no relationship prior to the marriage. The text depicts the man waking from sleep to find before him a woman whom he immediately weds. The text depicts the man waking up and there she is we can see in this the prototypical arranged marriage so that this aspect doesn't entirely stand historically apart but it does sharply contrast with modern western marriage practices by and large fourth no human community witnesses this union because no human community exists We'll return to this point in connection with the role of government and society in marriage, but for now, let's just observe that the absence of government or community witnesses in the original marriage cannot present a paradigm for future marriages. In fact, as we'll observe in just a moment, this marriage was not devoid of government or witnesses. God stands in both places— officiator, and witness for this original marriage. But God will entrust those roles to humans in the normal course of human society. So with those particular uniquenesses in mind, what can we recognize as paradigmatic, a model from this original wedding? To see clearly, we'll need to identify certain specific details in how other biblical writers refer to this passage. First, we must acknowledge God's joining role in all human marriage. As God brought the first woman to the first man, so also God joins together each man and each woman who marry legitimately. We can see this most clearly in Jesus' comment following His reference to this passage as recorded in Mark ten nine. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But besides the narration of God's creation of the first woman, we may see another hint of this joining activity in Genesis 5, 2. Male and female, He created them and He blessed them and named them man when they were created. God named the couple together man or Adam. We may also see in this the ultimate roots of a wife taking the name of her husband, Largely in Israel, as in the ancient world more broadly, people married within their own tribe or clan, so no name change would be perceived. Also, people didn't typically have first names and last names like we do today. But in the case of marrying a foreigner, the woman would officially become a part of the clan or, and tribe of her husband. Second, we note that God brought a woman to the man as the suitable helper for him. In Mark 10, 6, as he argues for the significance and permanence of marriage, Jesus also makes reference to the different genders of the original couple by alluding to Genesis 1, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The woman God made from the man's side was significantly different from the man. Yet God made her to address the aloneness that God had judged not good. We should also make the point here that God made only one woman, not two, not a hundred. One woman for one man sufficiently met his creational need. Her otherness, her radical difference from the man did not threaten the man. Rather, her otherness brought completion to the man's life. Likewise, his otherness, his radical difference from the woman, provided completion to the woman's life. As we'll see in the man's initial assessment of the woman, in her very difference, he recognized her perfect fittingness to complete him. In the same vein, we notice that God removed a part of the man to make the woman which surely implies that God intended the woman to complete man and man to complete woman. God always intended male and female to work together, to cooperate, to influence each other, and ultimately to embrace each other in obedience to God. Third, we can observe the curious response of the man when he first sees the woman. As many have recognized, the man breaks out into something like poetic reflection, as he recognizes the woman's uniqueness in relation to all the other creatures he has seen, and he notices her supreme fittingness to complete him as God made her from the man and for the man. Paul recognized the significance of this too, as he refers to the woman as the glory of man in First Corinthians 11:7. Then in the next verse, verse eight, he explains, "For man was not made." From woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Back in Genesis 2, we also notice that the man does not address the woman with this jubilant poem. Notice the reference is to this and she, not you. It appears that the man here speaks to God, and we'll explore the significance of that in just a moment. Fourth we must reflect on the significance of verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. As Jesus and Paul both seem to have recognized, this verse establishes without a doubt that the preceding scene depicted the original wedding. The writer of Genesis, Moses, inserts this sentence to teach the people of his day. As Moses reflected on what God had revealed to him about that original wedding in the Garden of Eden, Moses refers to a man's father and mother, yet the first man and woman had no father and mother. Nevertheless, he sees clearly the paradigmatic nature of this original wedding, and he seeks to make that connection explicit. He begins with the word, therefore, because of what happened, as recorded in Genesis 2, 22 and 23 especially... The Israelites practiced weddings, as Moses describes in verse 24. He notes two key aspects of marriage, leaving and cleaving, or holding fast to. As we explore known Israelite marriage practices, we find little evidence that a man usually left the home of his father physically. Often, and it seems usually, a man brought his wife into his father's home, or perhaps built an extension onto his father's home. That's just cultural, not advice for you young people. Don't try it. So Moses is probably here reflecting on a man leaving his father and mother in the sense of coming out from under their all-encompassing parental authority so that the man establishes his own family. Perhaps Moses perceives this in the original man's poetic declaration in verse 23. As he makes an authoritative statement about the identity of this woman and her connection to him, the man expresses his independence and even, perhaps, his intention to remain connected to this woman. We again call attention to the uniqueness of this situation. The man has no parents to leave, and he has no traditional precedent, no established custom, no societal law to conform to in this setting. Moses further sees a paradigm for a man's cleaving to or holding fast to his wife. A study of this word's appearances in the Old Testament produces interesting and significant results. Very often, the verb appears with Israel as the subject and God as the object. And in every one of those verses, the word indicates Israel remaining faithful to the covenant God had established with them. A couple of biblical texts explicitly refer to marriage as a covenant relationship, Proverbs 2.17 and Malachi 2.14. And Moses' usage of this verb with a man as the subject and his wife as the object suggests that Moses also recognizes marriage as a covenant. Thus, he seems also to recognize the event described in Genesis 2.22 and 23 as the beginning of a marriage covenant between the first man and the first woman, And that the husband must cleave to his wife certainly implies his permanent commitment to her. Naked and not ashamed, the covenant of marriage. So, before we backtrack through these verses and highlight the features of a covenant, let's think about a definition of a covenant relationship. We'll have this up on the screen for you, and it it's thick, so hang with us. And we'll explore it and unpack it. A covenant relationship refers to a relationship initiated between at least two parties in which each party publicly accepts particular obligations to the other party, promising to act in specific ways which benefit the other party and develop the relationship in terms of loyal commitment, ratified by a symbolic action while God serves to hold both parties accountable to their obligations through legal sanctions and appropriate social pressure. Let's unpack that. The first act noted in our definition of a covenant relationship refers to the initiation of a new kind of relationship. Normally, one of the parties of the covenant does the initiating, the proposing, proposing terms of the obligation In Genesis 2, we don't see precisely this element. However, we see God taking the primary role of initiation in this moment, probably due to the previously discussed uniqueness of this moment in history. This man has just discovered his utter aloneness, and God assessed this situation as not good. This man doesn't know what he needs, but he apparently begins to understand that he lacks something. God graciously intervenes, putting the man to sleep. (laughs) And when he wakes up, he sees what he lacked standing before him. God had made her and brought her to him. So in this original marriage, God took over almost completely the role of initiation since the man had no woman to address. But in Moses' comment in Genesis 2.24, we see an implication that normally... The man takes the initiatory role, leaving his family to, make, to commit himself to a wife. However, Jesus seems to recognize that God has a role in this initiation of the covenant relationship in every legitimate marriage, as he refers to what God joins together in Mark ten nine. The second element of our definition of a covenant relationship involves two important ideas. First, the acceptance of obligations, and second, the public accountability of the relationship. We can see no clear, explicitly stated obligations within Genesis 2. However, we may have some hints that we can legitimately draw from the text. First, we notice that God made the woman in recognition of a specific need in the man. He did not have a helper fit for him. God then states that He made and intended the woman to serve as a helper fit for the man. Now, we could wonder, what help does the man need at this point? And we can perhaps get an answer to that question in the commission that God gives to man and woman together back in Genesis 1, 28. "'Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth.'" Certainly the man needed some specific womanly help to multiply. He could not do that on his own by God's design. But the woman helps the man fulfill every element of the original commission for God, from God, including exercising dominion over the rest of creation. Only together could they fully and properly reflect God's image. Only together could they rule this world in a beneficial way. What about obligations for the man? God addressed his commission to both of them so that both of them had obligations to work together to fulfill the creation commission. However, in the man's identifying her as woman in Genesis 2.23, he seems to verbalize his responsibility for her. As this shades into the next distinct element of our definition of a covenant relationship, we'll come back to his words in this verse. The public nature of the ratification of this covenant remains very important and involves a few different parts. First, the public nature of a covenant relationship highlights the need for parties to verbalize the promises, the obligations of the covenant. Second, the public nature of covenant relationships acknowledges the need for witnesses to the covenant. In the Garden of Eden, no other human witnesses existed. But God serves as the primary witness, and truly, in a covenant relationship, God is always a witness in those kinds of relationships. The man addresses his only words, the first human words that we have recorded in Scripture, in Genesis 2, apparently addressing God as witness rather than addressing the woman herself. God receives his proclamation as an oath to which God will hold him accountable. If she is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, then he may be claiming responsibility to nourish and cherish her as he would love his own body. Reflecting the idea from Ephesians chapter 5 that the apostle paul teaches us. Also, under the nature of a under the public nature of marriage as a covenant relationship, we could discuss the need for a mediator. God takes the role of mediator in addition to initiator in this original situation. God apparently listens to and receives the man's poetic oath indicating that he takes the woman as his wife. We might even have good reason to speculate that God's blessing of them, commission to them, and provision for them, highlighted in Genesis 1, 28 to 30, took place after the man's poetic declaration and acceptance of this woman as his wife. So God, as covenant mediator, blesses the new couple, sends them out to live out their marriage covenant in obedience to his commission, and he assures them of his abundant provision for their future life together. The third major element of our definition of a covenant relationship consists of a promissory oath to verbalize by both parties to keep the terms of the covenant and develop the relationship accordingly. Now clearly we don't see any words from the woman in Genesis 2. The focus of the account re- remains squarely on the man. We've already commented on the fact that the man doesn't address these words to the woman. His poetic words in Genesis 2.23 read again, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Mentions of bone and flesh together in similar ways in the Old Testament demonstrate that the phrase communicates a deep loyalty, a strong commitment to another person, an intimate family connection even. Furthermore, the man affirming her as coming out of himself seems to indicate that he recognizes her as fit for him, the helper he desperately needed. Likewise, the phrase translated this at last seems to imply that he recognized his aloneness and the absence of a helper fit for him in all the rest of creation that he had so far observed. He recognized her as his match and he claimed her as his own, probably implying that he officially took responsibility for her From that moment on, Moses seems also to see this in the man's poetic statement. His conclusion in Genesis 2.24 focuses on the creation of a new family entity with a deep level of commitment and responsibility. He may insert this comment just at this point, somewhat parenthetically, as he'll return to the narrative, the storyline going on in Genesis 2.25 as a reflection of the ancient recognition that words have the power to change a person's status or situation. In a similar way, we recognize the validity of an official of a wedding ceremony saying something like, And I now pronounce you husband and wife. The fourth element of our definition of a covenant relationship refers to a symbolic act that ratifies or finally, officially puts into effect the covenant relationship. Moses refers to this as he comments in Genesis 2.24 on the typical marital customs of his own day, which again he sees rooted in this original wedding, and they shall become one flesh. This refers primarily to the sexual union between a husband and a wife. All covenants include a ritual or symbolic act that makes them official, and what act could more clearly reflect the union of a husband and a wife joined together by God. The sexual act in and of itself does not establish a marriage covenant, but when the sexual act follows the public oath of commitment, it ratifies finally and conclusively the union between a man and a woman. It might be appropriate to view the passionate kissing of the bride and groom at the conclusion of the ceremony as the public, symbolic expression of the consummative union still to come. Unlike most covenant signs, however, God intends the covenant partners in the marriage covenant to repeat this covenant sign so that sex within marriage can serve as something like a covenant renewal ceremony powerfully expressing again and even deepening the mutual commitment, loyalty, and love of marriage. In light of this good purpose for sexual intimacy, it is a horrendous travesty that so often the sexual aspect of marriage is the source of intense conflict in marriage. Not only do we sinfully use our sexuality to manipulate each other, but we can play the hypocrite, and feigning enjoyment, fantasizing about others, or simply doing our duty. In order to keep the marriage bed undefiled, the physical intimacy that is enjoyed there should be mirrored by our emotional vulnerability and our complete honesty with each other. How much more should this be the case when we realize that we are, in a certain sense, renewing our covenant there in the bedroom? In fact, the phrase, become one flesh, implies a process rather than uh, simply a single unifying event. The process of becoming one flesh involves deepening intimacy and strengthening unity over time, partially, though not exclusively, through repeated enjoyment of sexual intimacy. The biblical text does not clearly indicate whether or not this original couple consummated their marriage by sexual union immediately. The final comment of Genesis 2 may imply that they did, but we must admit that the text has nothing like the clear statement of Genesis 4.1 regarding sexual union. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Moses makes this comment surely in contrast with his own experience, which reflects the common human experience of feeling shame and fear when exposed. This original couple felt no shame. No desperate need to hide or cover up. No fear. They seem unaware that their nakedness exposes their vulnerability. This element of vulnerability seems to come to the surface only once they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once they've rebelled against their God. They cover themselves with fig leaves, probably as a protective measure. I think we'd all agree, not a very good one. But that's what they're after. As long as they were trusting God... They had no need or no reason to believe that they were in danger. They were no longer trusting God for their protection. The final element of our definition of a covenant relationship recognizes God's ongoing commitment to uphold the terms of the covenant. In this, He serves as witness and mediator of the covenant. And sadly, we see this aspect as the original couple so quickly prove unfaithful covenant partners. We don't often reflect on the man's failure to take responsibility for his wife in the face of the serpent in Genesis 3, nor do we reflect on the man's abuse of his wife in his attempt to throw her under the bus when God shows up. Nevertheless, it seems clear that Genesis 3 not only depicts the fall of humanity, but also the breach of the original marriage covenant. And we see clearly God acting as covenant avenger as he announces judgment in Genesis three, fourteen 14 to 19, even still, God exercises restraint in His judgment and exercises even more grace in enabling the man and the woman to continue in their marriage and to continue pursuing faithfulness to the commission God had given them at first. They successfully produce children and begin filling the earth and attempting to subdue it, though it now rebels against their efforts. The story of marriage continues. We know that the original couple's rebellion against their creator had far-reaching universal effects on both the universe and humanity. But since both Jesus and Paul ground their teaching about marriage in this account of the pre-fall original wedding... We must conclude that human sin has not altered the fundamental nature of marriage. However, we don't live in paradise any longer. We do live in societies of people. We do have parents and families. So how should we understand and practice initiating and maintaining marriage covenants? What else does the Bible show us? Truly, as the historical account of the book of Genesis continues, we see far more negative examples regarding marriage than positive, revealing how sin has indeed damaged the experience of marriage. However, Moses has given us an interesting description of the initiation of the marriage covenant between Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 24. First, we note that Abraham arranges this marriage for his son, delegating the travel and communication required to his most trusted servant in Genesis 24, 1-4. Second, as, we, as the servant seeks clarification for his mission, we learn in verse 5 that he recognizes the possibility that the woman in view may refuse the proposal. Third, as the story continues, we see the servant trusting God to make it really clear which woman God had appointed for Isaac to marry. Genesis 24, 12 to 14. And God does identify Rebekah as the servant had requested so that he goes to her home and her family to ask them to send her to go with him back to Isaac. Genesis 24, 15 to 49. As he speaks to Rebekah's family, the servant refers back to Abraham's words a little differently than Abraham actually said them. Abraham had said to the servant in Genesis 24, 8... But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. In Genesis 24, 41, the servant paraphrases him to her family as saying, And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. This implies that Abraham and his servant expected the woman herself to accept or reject the proposal. And they expected the family to have some input in the matter. Fourth, her father and brother give consent, convinced that God had made it clear that He had appointed her to marry Isaac under these circumstances. Genesis twenty-four fifty 50-51. Fortunately, we don't get to see more about the actual wedding. In Genesis 24, 67, Moses summarizes, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Finally, we can see the public and legal nature of the marriage covenant, as a Philistine king establishes public policy to protect the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, who are foreign visitors to his land. Many years after their marriage, Isaac and Rebecca settled in Philistine territory, and Isaac told people that Rebekah was her sister, was his sister. King Abimelech observed the two of them engaged in some kind of playful activity that revealed their relationship as husband and wife. Genesis 26, 6-8. King Abimelech responds to this discovery saying to Isaac in Genesis twenty six What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. King Abimelech recognizes their marriage as a public relationship that carries certain legal rights and protections. He goes on in verse 11 to warn his people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Drawing from these two biblical stories, we can begin to see the multidimensional nature of marriage as a public institution. The ordinary formation of a marriage involves parties besides the couple themselves, especially both families. Also, we can see how the covenant of marriage anticipates and makes possible certain social and governmental involvement and protections. King Abimelech and his Philistine communities had to acknowledge the legitimacy of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage and legally had to protect the sanctity of their union. In the next account of a wedding we find Isaac's son, Jacob, pursuing a wife from his clan in the household of Laban, Rebekah's brother. Jacob desired to have Rachel as his wife, so rather than offering the customary monetary transaction with her father, he offered to serve Laban for seven years. Once the seven years of service had ended, we read in Genesis twenty-nine twenty-two. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. If you know the story, you know there's some other wrinkles that I'm going to bypass for simplicity's sake right now. But the party is the focus here. This demonstrates the normal practice of having a public celebration, a covenant ceremony to begin the marriage. Perhaps more famously, we know Jesus attended an elaborate wedding ceremony where he participated behind the scenes, transforming barrels of water into excellent wine. John 2, 1 to 11. Also, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8, depicts a heavenly multitude crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God sits enthroned as the reigning king, and the lamb appears as his royal son who has selected a wife. An angel then tells John, who heard this great announcement recorded in Revelation nineteen nine, Write this, "'Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, "'feasting, celebration, and host of invited guests.'" paint a grand picture of the beginning of a marriage as a public and joyous occasion. What makes marriage legitimate, though? Let's back up for just a moment. I've used the phrase legitimate marriage a couple of times. It's important to consider what makes a marriage legitimate, according to Scripture. Jesus spoke of God joining together man and woman in marriage. As we've seen throughout our survey of Scripture, a marriage covenant can only exist between a man and a woman. Indeed, the reality of a one-flesh union can only exist between a man and a woman. However, the Bible does speak of a one-flesh union that does not constitute a marriage. The Bible does recognize the reality of sex outside of marriage, though the Bible consistently condemns the practice in all of its forms. Because of our union with Jesus, Paul insists that we must not unite with a prostitute, raising the rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 6.16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Sexual intercourse does not make two people married. Only when sexual intercourse occurs in the context of a covenant. Does it serve its proper purpose of consummating and celebrating marriage? However, sexual intercourse does create a real union. But Paul decries this union as illegitimate and out of bounds for a Christian. Reiterating what we've observed earlier, God intended sexual intercourse to serve as the act that consummates a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. It should follow the making of public vows as part of the establishment of the covenant. Moreover, a man and a woman living together for however long a period of time does not constitute a legitimate marriage. Jesus implies this in his famous conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4.18 as he tells her, For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Sex and cohabitation do not mystically form a marriage covenant. Remarriage after divorce presents a very complex situation. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, Paul provides the normative command in the case of a Christian divorcing his wife or a Christian divorcing her husband in most circumstances. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. He indicates that if a Christian woman divorces her husband, she does not have the freedom to remarry. Her obligation remains to her original husband. And she should remarry him, if possible, or else remain unmarried. Now, if we raise the hypothetical question that Paul does not raise for us, what if she does marry someone else? We probably must conclude very tentatively four things. First, she has sinned by disobeying Paul's command here. Second, she must repent. Third, her repentance surely would not include divorcing her new husband, which would only compound her sin. And fourth, God will hold her accountable to her marriage covenant with her new husband, and her obligations to her previous husband will have ceased with her repentance. Thus, we tentatively have to say that God would view the remarriage as a legitimate marriage that He, in some sense, joined together. Although, putting it just this way complicates the issue, doesn't it? Does God join together a man and a woman when one of those parties technically still has unfulfilled vows or unfulfilled obligations from a previous covenant? Perhaps it's safe to say that he does. We'll talk about this more in a later message. Divorce does end the relationship itself, the covenant. Even in the case of an illegitimate divorce, where the obligations of the party still stand. We'll have to build that out later on. This situation seems to reflect Paul's command for the Christian to remarry her original spouse the remarriage would be a new marriage covenant. But it would reflect the fact that the covenant relationship, the original covenant relationship, was ended without an actual breach of the terms. Again, we'll have much more to say about that later on in several weeks. We don't need to end there, though. So as we conclude, let me just summarize where we're headed, give you a bigger picture of what we're looking at in this series, and we'll be done really quickly With this grand story in mind, the story of marriage in the scriptures, where are we headed? Next week, we'll highlight the biblical purposes of marriage. Then, we'll take a look at singleness and how the Bible makes much of this gift and calling. After that, we'll talk about God's design of marriage to be temporary and transient for this age only. As we move into October, we'll take a week to address the issue of wives' submission to husbands, and then we'll take a week to press the husbands to rightly love their wives. Then we'll take a look at a biblical overview of human sexuality. After that, we'll pursue a three-week scan of the Song of Songs. Then on November 15th, we're planning a very special Sunday, and we'll be communicating the unique details of that gathering soon but we hope to address the very difficult problem of pornography specifically finally we'll conclude our series the sunday before thanksgiving summarizing much of what we've seen and taking a look at some of what the bible says about marriage divorce and remarriage so i i hope that whets your appetite for what's coming we elders want to do whatever we can to strengthen marriages and families Especially knowing that some families have suffered significantly in recent months. Some in connection to the pandemic and the uh, things that have flown out of that. We want to talk openly about sexuality because the problems associated with broken and sinful sexuality in this world will only continue to worsen if they remain in the dark. And even more importantly, the Bible has a whole lot to say about it. So at the risk of a bit of blushing along the way, we're going to open these issues up and we'll seek to be delicate and sensitive. And again, let me urge any parents who have concerns about whether their children should hear what we're talking about in here, please come talk with me. I'm happy to share with you some of the things we're going to be talking about very specifically. It's important that our teenagers especially, but even younger children need to hear these things from a biblical perspective. But parents have the primary responsibility here. And so I want you to be in the loop at least and know what we're getting into. I want our final thoughts to be on Jesus this morning. As we'll see more clearly next Sunday, our marriages are to be focused on bringing him glory in every area. And that's because of the story that we've explored today. The Bible in large measure is a story about a bride and a groom, about a wedding. And I'd like to close, if we can, can we play a video, Gary? Is that going to work for us? All right. It's one of my favorite songs. If we can't play it, you can't.